Hello everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the second season of Crankcast. I'm your host Tudor and today we're going to talk about bikes. We're going to talk about some new bikes that just come out. We're going to talk about a story about the Honda this time. And we're also going to talk about um, some other events from the motorcycling industry. So I think it should be fun. So that being said, let's go straight into it and do a little bit of a summary of the topics. First of all, we finally have a new Kawasaki KLR650. That's exciting. And then uh, we have some more details on the new Triumph Speed Triple 1200 RS. That should actually be exciting. We knew this bike was coming, but now we have a few more details on it, which is great. Next, bike sales dropped 2.5% in the pandemic. Is it good? Is it bad? We're going to find out. KTM news, because we all know a bit of a of KTM fanboy, but they slightly updated the new 1290 Super Adventure S with a lot of electronic stuff and exciting things, for, especially for touring people. We might have a new Husqvarna bike on the 3rd of February. Uh, we most likely will. Uh, we've got no idea what, but we can, we can guess from what Husqvarna has provided us so far. And finally, from the news section, we have a new KLX 230R. You probably didn't hear about this bike, but you probably should. And then to the story time, we're going to dive into a bike that was pretty interesting when it launched. And it was Honda. So it was, I'm talking about a Honda GL500 Silverwing, also known as the Goldwing's little brother from the 80s. But until then, let's, let's take it step by step. Let's take it one by one. And the first thing we need to talk about is Kawasaki. Because our prayers have finally been answered, we have a new KLR650. Now, depending on which side you are with Kawasaki, you'll either love this to death or hate Kawasaki just as much. So, um, what is this new bike, this newly refreshed bike, basically? First of all, you have to know that it's just... A it's a combination of tweaks to the old model. It's not a complete redesign like, let's say, the 10RS700 was for the old 10RS660. It's still, at heart, it's still the old model. And that comes with good stuff and bad stuff. But we're going to leave the conclusion for a bit later. Let's walk through some specs and what they changed. So first of all, we have a new headlight, which is LED, which is good. What's not good is that they took inspiration from their ZH2, and oh my god, look, everyone told Kawasaki that that ZH2 was an ugly bike, and I mean, let's be fair, it, it is dead ugly, it's, it's awful to look at, so they thought, hey, that was so well received, let's make the KLR have basically the same headlight. Um, yeah, you can imagine how that goes. Overall, the design of the bike is sort of similar to old models, but with this new update. So we have a new headlight LED, that's good. We also have a new dashboard. This time it's an LCD display, but they took sort of the Yamaha route, and it's not a TFT, it's not a color display. Simple black and white display. Honestly, for a bike like this KLR and for what it is and for the, what it wants to be, I genuinely think this is a good idea. Um, I... <laughs> I don't blame them. Yeah, this is fine. Next up is the kilograms. Now, this is both disappointing and not so much. The disappointing thing is that it gained quite a bit of weight over the old model. Now, the old model was always a bit of a pig. Um, and this new one is basically no lighter. It's, in fact, heavier. So now it sits at about 206 kilograms. For reference, that's not a lot over the 10 or 700 
but it's a lot over the KTM 690. Like it's between 15 to 20 kilos heavier than the KTM 690 and, and now the 890 Adventure. I mean, the KLR was always a, a big, heavy bike. So, um, I mean, yeah, you could say they kept their reputation for having a big, heavy bike. But hmm, compared to the Yamaha, it's actually not that bad. So I'm I'm not that mad. I'm Could they have done better? Uh, yes, of course. Um, they, they know they didn't, so whatever, let's move on. We have a new ABS system. Um, so the theory is is that the ABS system can now be slightly delayed for when going off-road, so that would allow you to temporarily lock the wheels, when, as you do need to sometimes off-road. Now, there's a bit of an issue that Yamaha had, for example, with their ABS system on the Tenere. Yes, it can be deactivated, but every time you turn off the bike or you stall the bike, you need to re-deactivate it. If not, you st get stuck on the hill, you stall, for example, you turn on the bike to go back down, and then you have your ABS on. And if you have your ABS on, on dirt, you might be in big trouble. So I'm curious what approach would Kawasaki take to this. Even if this ABS system is, let's say, more approachable on like dirt roads or hills, is it though good enough so that you never need to take it out? Or is it at least easy to fully switch off? I don't know. <laughs> well, we're going to find out. But yeah, this ABS system is... I, I'm personally a bit worried. Let's just put it there. Next up, the gearbox. Um, an old complaint with the old KLR was that it only had the 5-speed gearbox, which on the highways, you might imagine, is not that great because you don't have that sort of overdrive gear, that fuel economy gear. Well, bad news. You still don't have a 6-figure. Uh, it's one of the only bikes in 2020 that launches with a 5-gear gearbox. I mean, what can you do? Uh, as I said, it's at base, at heart, it's the old KLR. And this also goes when we talk about the engine. Now, it is slightly tweaked, of course, like it has to meet some new emissions and stuff like that, but it's the same lumpy single tractor thingy. Really, the, the idea of the engine hasn't been updated that much. The power of it, again, not updated much. What has been updated to it? is they finally dropped the carbs and went over to fuel injection. Um, I mean, it was kind of time, right? It's 2021, seeing a brand new bike that's carbureted, that's also sort of a, a road bike. Um, that's um, weird. But yeah, now KLR, the KLR has basically aligned with its competition and it offers fuel injection, which is great, in my opinion. Now, some people might be mad. Um, yeah. What can I say? One good thing about it, though, and a good thing that has basically stayed throughout the years with the KLR is its price. So the KLR will start at six thousand seven hundred US dollars for the base model. Now that does not come with ABS. So if you want ABS, you will need to upgrade to a bit better package. And the most expensive KLR, the KLR, I think it's six fifty Adventure or something like that. It's called, but basically that one is about eight thousand US dollars. I'm not sure about the value of the adventure model. I honestly think, look, for reference, a Tenere is about $10,000. So the most expensive KLR compared to the Tenere is $2,000 cheaper. That might sound like a lot, and it is. Don't get me wrong. $2,000 is a lot of money. But really, at that point, I would kind of go for the Tenere. Just 
have a few more bucks. Like it's it's got a better engine, a better everything basically. The Tenere will probably be a better bike in general. It's just as reliable. And for two thousand dollars, yes, I mean I know that's not a small amount, but but still, I would just rather go for the Tenere. Now on the lower end though, for six thousand seven hundred dollars, that's thirty three hundred dollars cheaper than the Tenere. Now that's interesting. I know they're not they're they're probably not gonna be in the same sort of ballpark as performance, neither on road or off road. And I'm fine with that. But what this means is that you can finally buy that simple, cheap, dual sport adventure bike. And this is it, you, the new KLR650, it's still the king of that. And that's amazing. So the thing is, some people will want a tractor when thinking about a KLR650. Some people wanted something more. Some, I feel like a lot of people wanted Kawasaki to really go with it and do something amazing. Like what Yamaha did with the Tenere. They didn't though. They just, they based themselves on their old heritage of the KLR as being this pig that's basically undestroyable. As long as you feed it with oil, um, you can't destroy a KLR. And I get it. Um, to be fair, I think they're in a quite nice position here because they're not really competing with anyone. I mean, the Tenere is quite more expensive and yes, it's it's better in performance, but I, I bet you this KLR is going to be more reliable. Um, and it's cheaper, let's be fair. It, it is cheaper. And for people who don't who do that hardcore off-roading, it's probably not going to be bad. Yeah, of course, you can't compare it to the 790. That's just another completely different league, the, the 790 and the 890 Adventure. But I think I think Kawasaki might be onto something here. It's hard to compete with Yamaha, with their Tenerate. It's a really amazing value. It's hard to compete with KTM because they have basically gone all out. If you want the best middleweight adventure bike, you buy the KTM. If money, no object, you buy the KTM. But what if you want the exactly opposite of the KTM? What if you want something cheap, reliable, cheap, um, cheap to maintain? <laughs> Did I mention cheap as well? This is where the KLR comes in the picture. And honestly, I think they're onto something. I, I genuinely think they are onto something. And... Um, I can't wait to see the reviews. I, I kind of know what to expect already, but yeah, I can't wait to see what other people think about it. I would love to get my hands on one actually um, at some point, but who knows? So the KLR might not be the most exciting bike, but the next bike we're going to talk about is, and I'm talking about the Triumph Speed Triple 1200RS. Yes, long name, but I don't care. When you read the specs, you're going to understand why I do not really care about the name. First of all, not really a spec, but the design is absolutely beautiful. I love the fact that they basically took their old sort of Triumph heritage style that they do with all their other bikes, like the Triumph Street Triple as well. They applied it to this. I think it looks amazing. Um, what they could do, and I'm not the only one saying this, I think, uh, I think 44 Thief has said this as well. But I think that uh, the Triumph really could do with some more sort of edgier paint jobs or flashier paint jobs they have some amazing shapes and they kind of limit themselves with some of the colors like the, the gray on gray um don't get me wrong they're they're elegant bikes they're beautiful looking bikes i would love to ride one um and i would love to even look at one and photograph one but uh, yeah overall the design I, I genuinely can't complain it's as triumph as it gets and i'm saying this in the best way possible the engine again i can't really complain it's 177.5 horsepower which basically puts it in the Hyper naked territory, so it's it's there with the Tuono, it's there with the Super Duke. Uh, I I could I would argue it's even there with the like Street Fighter, just power wise. 
Um, and also, consider this, it's a 1200 triple engine. So what triple means is that compared to stuff like the MT-10, for example, it's going to have a bit more torque uh, in the mid-range. Not up to Super Duke levels. I mean, having a twin is basically cheater, cheating for uh, for torque. But I think it's going to have some really decent levels of torque. Um, another good thing is that the bike is 10 kilograms lighter than the old model. That's quite a lot. To be fair, it was kind of needed. Uh, the old model was, compared to today's standards, wasn't a ballerina any longer. It kind of went a bit too much to McDonald's. But uh, yeah, it's 10 kilograms lighter. It has, of course, all the top shelf components as Triumph got us used to. So it has Olin suspension, Brembo brakes, all the uh, electronics gizmos that you could possibly want. So um, it comes with cruise control, the first Triumph bike with keyless go, all of the electronic aids that you could possibly want, you know, the full package. I mean, you are paying for it. It's a, it's an RS model. It's their flagship model. So it's kind of to be expected. And speaking of paying for it, um, the bike is significantly more expensive than the old model. But this shouldn't scare you because what that means is that basically it's aligned with current like hyper-naked bikes. So the price is going to be 15000 great british pounds so that's probably a bit under or somewhere around the twenty thousand dollar market for this new flagship um bike that, that's actually not bad it's basically on par with other hyper nakeds and this is what it's competing with other hyper nakeds so uh yeah price is good i think it it's where it should be and what i as a sort of an, a conclusion to this um little news I think this might be an incredible middle ground between the Super Duke and something like the Tuono and the Street Fighter. Because, so here's the thing, the, the Tuono and the Street Fighter, the, the issue, I mean, it's not an issue, but the thing with them is that they are basically super sport bikes, super bikes with fairings chopped off, which for a lot of applications, it's, it's not a bad thing. The Super Duke is the exact same opposite. The frame and everything from the ground up has been fought in such a way for it to be a naked. It's a naked bike. It's got nothing to do with the with any sort of super bike. Hell, KTM doesn't even sell that bike. Now, with Triumph, it's actually interesting because with the triple engine and stuff, uh, it's definitely not just a super bike with chopped fairings, this new speed triple. But it's also not as bonkers as the Super Duke is. And Triumph also has some heritage in racing. I mean, they provide engines for Moto2, I think. I hope I'm not mistaken. Um, but they do, like, racing bikes, and they had, had their Daytona series, their 765 and 675. Um, so I think this might be a really good compromise for a lot of people between the Super Duke and something like a Tuono, right? You don't want to be... You don't want just, like, a race bike for the street, but you don't want only something that's a hooligan as the Super Duke. So you buy the, the Triumph. Um, I think that would make sense. I think it fits perfectly in that slot between the Tuono and the Super Duke, or even the Street Fighter. But yeah, we're going to have to see. Um, again, as all the other bikes that I ever read news about, I can't wait to really um, ride this at some point. Now, talking to some more economic-related um, news, uh, and motorcycle sales have only dropped 2.6% in the pandemic. Now, this is uh, sort of a statistic made in the UK, so it might not be applicable to everywhere in the world, um, which is fine, right? But uh, we're not going to sit too much on this one, but basically what I'm trying to say here is that 
yes, the motorcycle market did drop 2.6%. But we were in a kind of a global pandemic, so um, that's actually not bad at all. Especially when comparing to under other industries, that's not bad at all. And what's actually good is that there was a big increase in scooters. Now, think about it this way. In these times, a lot of people lost their jobs, right? And so a lot of people sort of reoriented to do stuff like delivery or being couriers or things like that. And what that means is that you need a lot more scooters to do all this delivery. Like all restaurants need delivery, so more delivery drivers and riders are needed. Now, more delivery riders means more scooters. That's actually, I think it's a great thing. Like scooter commuting, I think it should be encouraged. So that's great. I mean, sure, scooters are not motorcycles, but they're two wheels, you know? It's, to me, it's, it's not that big of a difference. Um, and also you have to see the other side because a lot of people have had quite some disposable income. Now think about it. Sure, a lot of people lost their jobs and they're not doing well. And I'm really sorry for those people. But you have to see the other part as well. A lot of people still have their jobs. Maybe their industry went well, even during the pandemic. They had way less uh, costs, right? No more really vacations and holidays. No more um, going out, eating out, stuff like that. And so for those people, it's quite easier to save money, to just grab money. And now they want to burn it on something, but they couldn't spend it on vacations, on traveling, stuff like that. So... But a lot of people maybe spend that money on a bike, and I think it's honestly pretty feasible. That's why some sports cars, for example, sold decently well during this this pandemic as well. But yeah, um, this is the motorcycle market. You never know what's going to happen. But what we do know is going to happen is KTM announces their new updated 1290 Super Adventure S. So there are actually a few updates. Uh, the most important one are electronics, but... Uh, the updates don't just stop there. So, first things first, we finally have radar cruise control. Now, we kind of knew that was coming um, from some older spy shots of their of this, a prototype of a 1290 Super Adventure. But now it's confirmed we have radar cruise control. I would love to try that one day. I love radar cruise control in my car and lane keep assist. I use it all the time. Now, radar cruise control can be really helpful at times. So, um, yeah, I'm... I can't wait to see how it how that works. Um, we have more suspension electronics, and our suspension is sort of more adaptable and smarter. So like, that should be good. We have a six-axis uh, six IMU. Um, yeah, that should be good as well. Um, we have a lower gas tank. So they, they adapted the philosophy be um, behind their 790 and 890 adventures. And so what this means is that basically the the gas tanks are hanging lower on the side of the bike. Um, the capacity is basically the same, but what this does is it keeps the center of gravity and the cent center of weight lower. That makes for the bike feel lighter, make it easier to lift off the ground, and uh, just more maneuverable in, in slow terrain. So I think that's great. Uh, I honestly think that's great. And the most amazing part about it is that the price for it is 15,000 Great British Pounds. Now, it's not cheap for a motorcycle in general, but for a super adventure bike, like for an adventure touring bike, that's really darn good. That's so competitive. And uh, to be fair, the super adventure was kind of known in a lot of markets to be way cheaper than something like the, um, the BMW GSs. 
and they are there. They have the engine. I mean, hell, the 1290 engine is a darn good engine, a darn powerful one. They have the electronics, they have the suspension, they have heritage, they have a lot of things, and sometimes for a lot less money. So I honestly think KTM, I mean, KTM has had great success with this bike already, um, but I think they're going to have even more. I mean, even if I look at my sort of local market, two weeks ago, for example, there was no Super Duke for sale, none in the country. But there were about five Super Adventures. Well, that tells me that a lot more people bought Super Adventures. And it makes sense. At the price they are, I think they're a great deal and a great value. Now, second to last topic um, of the new section. And it's actually, we might have a new bike from Husqvarna on the 3rd of February. What do we know about this? Well, um, nothing. Basically nothing. So... All we know is that, K- that Husqvarna updated their website a little bit with some pictures and stuff like that. So we have a, an urban setting picture with nothing in it. Um, so that's cool. Um, that would hint towards the the Svartpilen 1 to 5. Like that has been rumored to come to Europe for a while. Um, so we'll see if that's a thing. But if you go and read some of their like slogans for this new announcement, Two of them sound like this. Ride your own road and go where few have. Now, I don't know about you, but ride your own road and go where few have, that to me sounds like adventure bike. What else could it be? I mean, go where few have. A lot of people go on the road. That's not hard on any bike. So I think, like, given this, um, I think we're going to see the Northern 901 maybe. I think Motorcycle News actually got a, a sort of a sneak preview, like a bit of an on-road test of a prototype not that long ago. So we know the Northern 901 is in the pipeline. It, it's here. It's going to come here. And it's going to come soon. So maybe it's the Northern. I can't wait. That bike looks so sexy, especially in the prototype form. Um, I can't wait to see what Husky does with it. I, I genuinely can't wait. And then... Yeah, this is Husky News, but we're going to go back to Kawasaki for our last bit of news. Maybe not that exciting, but I think you could get excited over something like this, honestly. We have a new KLX 230R. Um, What this bike basically... If you're just watching the podcast, if you're listening to the podcast, this is basically the new sort of small dirt bike. What I love about this is that this basically signals that simple small four strokes are not dead they're they're not dead and they're here to stay and that's great so this bike has an air-cooled engine producing a bit of horsepower that's not really that relevant in a bike like this what i love about this though is, is the concept of it right this bike is basically somewhere in between a farm bike and a trail bike for a beginner and i think this sits amazingly for someone who's just starting to ride or for maybe um, your girlfriend, which might be smaller, and it's, it's harder for her to start on, on something like a, a proper Enduro 250. Plus, this is easy to maintain. I mean, it's it's an air-cooled bike. You don't have to change the coolant. You, it's a simple bike, and it's one of those bikes that will just track around forever. Sure, performance is not the thing you talk about with bikes like this, but that's not the point, really. This will be reliable. This will take you wherever you need to go off-road and it's a new bike and it's a great beginner bike if you want to start on something start with dual sport riding heck KLX 230R let's go and what's even more amazing is that the price for this is 4,400 US dollars new on the showroom floor again you won't get like much technology or anything like that with a bike like that but you don't need it that's not the point of this bike 
The point of this bike is it's simple, it tractors anywhere. It's amazing from that point of view. So yeah, I'm actually kind of excited for this. I would love to ride one. <laughs> I mean, I say that I, love to, I would love to ride all the bikes that I, I talk about. And to be fair, that's true. I want to ride anything I can. Um, but yeah, uh, this has been the news section. So we're going to come back with the story time section, which today we're going to talk about the Honda GL500 Silverwing. So this is the second part of the show where we're going to talk about something that usually happened a bit more time ago. And this is exactly the case here because we're talking about Honda in this case. And to be more specific, I am talking about the Honda GL500 Silverwing. What is the GL500 Silverwing? The easiest way to describe this bike and the best way to be fair is with two simple words, mini Goldwing. Take your regular Honda Goldwing, cut it a little bit, like shrink it a bit in size, like Ant-Man does, and boom, you have the Silverwing. It, it kind of makes sense, even, even with their naming, right? What this bike was intended to be is sort of a bit of a more budget Goldwing. The market for big sort of cruisers was there. It was booming. And so Honda decided to come with this smaller and cheaper thing as well. And speaking of cheap, this bike, when it launched, was $4,000. Now, yes, this was in 1982, 1981. Those were the two production years, so 81 and 82. But still, um, for something that wanted to be like a touring bike with like panniers and full fairings in front, that even back then, it was not a bad price for, uh, for this Honda. What it came with, though, is... Um, it's interesting. So it did come with Goldwing-style fairings. You had a lot of controls, of course, a lot of buttons and gadgets and stuff like that. The same basically idea and concept that you would get in a Goldwing. But underneath you was a 500cc engine. Yeah, a bit disappointing. Um, but this was sort of the entire point of this bike. The point was to make a lighter weight, smaller cc engine but in a touring form, and Honda did it. Now, you can imagine how well it went since it only sold for two consecutive years, right? Uh, it was not the best-received bike out there. It's actually quite a rare bike these days. Um, it's not that easy to get your hands on one. Um, but I can see where Honda came, or what Honda was thinking when designing this bike, because back in the day, right, in, in the 80s, Harley-Davidson, BMW, and even Honda with their Goldwing were kind of battling in this sort of big touring section. Honda had their 1100 Goldwing, uh, BMW had just come out with um, something, um, Harley had that bagger, their baggers, of course. And so Honda was already in this game, and this was a pretty popular game. A lot of competitors played it. It was a popular section, and to be fair, it still kind of is, especially with a specific demographic. But Honda really... If you're talking about small engines, you're talking about Honda in a bike. And I'm not saying it in a bad way, necessarily. Honda does really know how to make smaller engines in bikes. I mean, they've done some legendary, good, reliable, high-performance, even small engines. And so this could have made sense. So the, the power plant, though, was from a CX500, which is kind of 80s technology. Now, keep in mind, this bike was launched in 81 to 82. So this engine had almost 10 years, was almost 10 years old at that point when Honda introduced it in this bike. Now, 
it wasn't a bad engine, right? It was reliable. Um, it, it did its job, to be fair. But it was not the most exciting engine. I mean, I know touring bikes are not meant to be exciting. I know. But I kind of would have probably wanted a bit more out of it, if you know what I mean. It did have some self-redeeming stuff, though. Um, the technology for 1980s was on point. Especially... If this was a cheap bike. A, a, okay, this was a budget tourer. And it was a small capacity one. But still, the bike came with a fuel gauge, which for 1980s is not bad. With self-canceling turn signals. Now, a lot of bikes these days don't come with self-canceling turn signals. Most bikes these days, I don't think, come with self-canceling turn signals. Honda had this in the 80s on a small touring bike. That, that's not bad. It had an auto petcock. If you don't remember, basically, back in the days uh, when a lot of people, most people rode carbureted bikes, you didn't really have a fuel gauge. So what you would do was ride around the street and your bike would start to sputter. That's when you knew you were kind of running out of gas. So that way you would just reach down to the padcock, put it on reserve, and at that point you had a few more kilometers left, just enough for you to get to a petrol station. And people were used to this, but Honda decided to put it an automatic one. So whenever you, um, you reach sort of the reserve, it would automatically switch to the reserve hose from the gas tank and it would alert you that, hey, dude, you idiot, go to the gas station, basically. Hey, for 1980s, small bike again. Impressed. What I'm not impressed, though, is about the performance. Now, look, I know a touring bike is not about performance. I know a small bike is not about performance. And yes, I do know that a small touring bike is not about performance. But when a bike is slow, by any stretch of the imagination, you have to point it out. And so, this was the case of the Silver Ring. The main issue really is, is as basic as it gets. Small engine, big weight. The, the engine was small, it was a 500cc engine, but the weight on it was pretty big because it had all of those fairings on it with a lot of controls and a lot of electronic, electric gizmos. And also, the, this was a decently heavy bike when empty, but the thing with baggers is that in those panniers and in the boxes, you can fill them up. And when you fill them up, this bike could become a bit of a dog. And not only in a straight line, because I quote from a review from Cycle World from back in the day, wallows predictably. That was the way Cycle World described the handling of the GL500 silver ring. And look, it makes sense, right? The suspension was a bit too soft. It was a soft bike in general, right? The engine was soft, suspension was soft. If you were to point it in a straight line, it would probably do fine. But whenever you got to some more twistier road or maybe a road that got up to a mountain, you would struggle a little bit. Now, I don't mean struggle as in you would barely reach 20 kilometers per hour, no. But you wouldn't go too quickly either up, up it. So yeah, handling did suffer. Um, yes, it was a tourer, so you can see what a lot of people excused it for that. I mean, it wasn't really made for handling, but still, they are. there are bikes that handle way better than that one. And it also were kind of heavy. Um, this sort of asks back the question, was there ever a market for small tourers? I honestly don't think so. And this bike kind of proves it. Yes, it, it sort of reached classic, kind of a legendary status. But it did that because it was only manufactured in a small amount, um, in a small production number, and only for two years. And let me tell you some Economics 101. 
if bike manufacturer creates bike, if bike sells well, bike manufacturer creates more bike and sells that bike for as long as they can. This one was always sold for two years, so you can imagine how well it went. So yeah, I kind of doubt the fact that it was ever uh, a market for small baggers. Is there one now? Um, let me think. No, 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 not at all. I mean, there is a mar- there. There's definitely a market these days, especially in places like Europe, for smaller CC bikes, but not for smaller CC touring bikes because that's kind. It's really hard to make that work, unfortunately. Now, this Honda back in the day, it did have some competitors. Though so there was BMW, there are. Uh, 60, 65, or 70, something like that. I'm not that good with old BMW bikes. I'm trying to be, though. And they also had competition from Moto Guzzi. But really, Honda was kind of the only one to really push this concept of small baggers. Here's the thing. Usually small bikes, and this bike included, is sort of seen as beginner bikes. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong whatsoever. But it's just not a thing a lot of people spend money on, as you would usually do with a bagger. And the people who buy these tourers are usually a bit older. And if you're a bit older, you've probably been riding for a bit of time. And at that point, you kind of want a bigger bike. So I think that this bike just addressed a market that never actually existed. I think that's a bit of a shame, right? This bike had so many good things going for it. So many. It was it was ahead of its time in in a lot of in a lot of ways. But I think that time just never came. The time that the the, the Silverwing was trying to reach just never came, unfortunately. And it it, it kind of goes in the history of Honda's flops. Two years. That's all it took. All it took for Honda's bosses to decide to exit. And honestly, I can't blame them. Um, look at how many are there out there on the road right now. There's a reason why. They never made many because not many people bought them. And it's sad. But we have to end here this episode. So thanks a lot for listening to this. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the news. I hope you enjoyed the little remembering of the silver wing. Oh, that's a rhyme. That's I'm good. But yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, um, please give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast listening platform is. If you're watching this on YouTube, also, I want to let you know that this is mainly an audio show. So I honestly think you'd be kind of better off listening on it uh, to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but whatever tickles everyone's pickles. So yeah, like, if you're watching this on YouTube, like it and maybe subscribe to it. And we also have our main channel, Crank It. So, um, we released a new video about supermodels and we are going to release a new video about something maybe related to video games and motorcycles, but we're going to have to see about that. But until then, thanks a lot for watching. Make sure to subscribe to Crank It and follow us on Instagram at crank.it. And until next time, have a good one.